The text that we'll be focusing on this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and we'll read that text now. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So far, the reading from the text. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, at a first reading of this text, we might get the impression that the preacher has now changed the topic. Up till now, uh, he's been talking about uh, the, the purpose of life and the, the many vain pursuits, the vanity, the chasing after the wind uh, that, that characterizes so much of our lives, the idols that we give our lives to pursuing. And uh, in, in, if you remember in chapter 4, he also explored some of the pain and the cruelty that comes from those, those pursuits. And now suddenly in chapter 5, we have a short text about worship. And we might think it, it seems like a change of topic. But it really is not a change of topic at all. Uh, he's developing further the point that he has just been making. Uh, The lesson in the last four chapters has been teaching us, if you want to distill it into one simple phrase, fear God rather than chasing after the wind. That's been the the, the big message of chapters 1 to 4. To fear God and regard all else as of little worth. Everything else is missed. It is transient. It is fleeting. It is empty. The fear of God matters. And that's really exactly what this text now about worship is also all about. It's about what does the fear of God look like? If we've taken that lesson to heart, what does that look like in worship? How do you worship with the fear of God uh, as opposed to other ways of worshiping that are, uh, like so much else in life, really nothing more than chasing after the wind? It happens in worship as well. That's what we want to think about this morning. What does worship look like that comes from the fear of God? How do the lessons that we've learned uh, so far about the the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God over the lives of men, uh, and the short-sightedness and foolishness of man for their part, the emptiness of man's pursuits, how does that change the way that we worship God when we come before him? And the big idea in this text is that true worship of God, uh, the worship that comes from the fear of God is cautious and humble. It it is cautious and humble. That's the first sentence in in chapter 5. Guard your steps when you draw near to the house of God. It speaks to caution and humility. 
the wise person who's taken to heart what we've seen so far about the foolishness and pride and vanity of the human heart and all of man's desires. Uh, The wise person uh, who also knows how evil we can be in the sight of God. When he comes to church or when he comes to the temple to worship God, he comes cautiously and humbly because he knows there are things in me, things in my heart and things in my life that are not pleasing to God. And so when the wise person uh, comes into the presence of God, he would rather listen. You see that as well in in verse 2. He would rather listen uh, than than speak and act. Uh, So so when we take those lessons to heart, they really do change the way that we worship. So again, verse 1, guard your steps when you draw near to the house of God. In other words, watch yourself. Watch what you are doing. Do not approach the house of God lightly or casually. This is not a time or place to be light or casual. Joyful, yes. Uh, We'll we'll come back to that point later. But casual, no. If we've taken to heart what we've seen so far uh, about how foolish and evil we can be, the last thing we want to be in the presence of God is casual. The presence of God is not a place to be flippant in our demeanor. The last thing that God needs is more of my foolishness, more of my empty thoughts, more of my selfish and self-centered desires, more of my pride or my self-congratulations. God doesn't need that. Uh, Come cautiously and humbly. See, the fool who's not taken this to heart, who hasn't been listening for the last four chapters, uh, he's full of himself, and so he comes into God's house like he owns the place. He's flippant. He's casual. He's utterly unaware of his own sin, uh, the foolishness and evil that lives in his own heart, uh, the emptiness of his own desires, but he waltzes into God's house like it's no big deal. Solomon says, don't be that guy. Watch your steps. Watch yourself. Stop to consider before you come into the house of God how, uh, how utterly unworthy you are to be there. Stop to consider how brief and how fleeting your life also is. Frankly, how unimportant you are in the grand scheme of things. Stop to consider the perfect holiness of God and the unholiness of your own life. It's true, by God's grace, you are welcome here. God has welcomed you and called you to be here. Uh, and, and this is God's grace through Christ. Solomon would have understood this through the, uh, through the sacrifices that pointed forward to Christ. He understood it under the you know, administration of shadows, but he understood, I'm here by God's grace. The great bronze altar at the front of the temple proclaimed that message loud and clear. So you can come, and you can come without the fear of judgment, but do not come as though it is a light thing to be here. Guard your steps. There it is, the the true worship of God, uh, worship that comes from the fear of God, is cautious and humble. And we should say something here about the fear of God. You notice that's the the term that the the text lands on in in chapter 7, the fear of God. Uh, When we we hear that phrase, it might sound sort of Old Testament-y to us. Uh, People sometimes talk as though the God of the Old Testament uh, was was angry and wrathful and he he kept himself at a distance from from God's people uh, and therefore people were taught to fear him. Uh, But now, you know, in the New Testament, fear is replaced by by love. But of course, that is is nonsense. And if you uh, read your New Testament carefully, you realize that very quickly. Uh, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
He doesn't change. He was near to his people then. You think of Psalms like Psalm 139. Oh, oh Lord, you, you've searched me and known me. You know my steps. You know uh, my words. Your, your right hand uh, leads me and holds me. Uh, the Old Testament, too, is, is full of mention of God's love, uh, his steadfast love, the, the most common uh, way of speaking of, of God. Uh, and the corresponding calling then, too, to love him, not just to fear him, to love him. What's the most famous uh, commandment of the Old Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and conversely, in the New Testament, God still remains just as holy as he ever was. And the fear of God is just as important as it ever was. Yes, we're saved by grace. That was the message of the temple as well. Yes, God has shown us his love, but we are called also to holiness, and we know that we have a long ways to go. There's much that in us that is unholy, and so we're called to conduct ourselves, you think of 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, conduct ourselves throughout our earthly journey with fear, knowing that our Heavenly Father is holy. You get a glimpse of this too in Hebrews 12, which we read a moment ago, where we see that what we've inherited in the New Testament, uh, though, though the grace is even richer, uh, yet it, it, it is not something that is less frightening than what the people of God experienced in the old. Uh, he, the author to the Hebrews uh, describes the fear that, that captivated the hearts of God's people then, including even someone like Moses, who was speechless before the, the sight of God's holiness, and yet then he says, what we're facing is, is, if anything, even more fearful. We've come to Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, and a God who is a consuming fire. Full of, full of love, yes, but also holy uh, and, and will judge sin. It's the same revelation God gave to Moses. A God who is uh, abounding in steadfast love, patient, slow to anger, but will not clear the guilty. It's the same God before whom we also stand. And so then, when we, when we come to see how holy God is, uh, and how foolish and how evil we can be, it makes us cautious and humble when we come before Him. And what this means, practically, is that we come to listen, not to speak. Draw near, he says, to listen and not to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Draw near to listen. You know, the reality is we love to have our voices heard. Uh, we love to have ourselves put on display. We want our emotions uh, to be put on display or our piety or our, uh, our, our religiosity put on display. It's a perennial temptation for uh, really any religious people. It ha and it happens in, in Christianity in almost any church setting, whether you're talking high church ritualism, thinking of like Roman, Roman Catholicism or Anglicanism, what's called high church uh, ritualism, or, or low church uh, emotionalism. In, in either end of the spectrum, uh, there is that same temptation to put yourself and your religiosity and your piety on display. We want it to be all about ourselves. And Solomon warns us against this. Keep yourself to yourself. Keep your opinions, your emotions, your public displays of religiosity to yourself. Don't come to church to show off. Uh, to show off how smart you are, how pious you are, how uh, 
whatever the terms are today, how authentic you are, uh, come to church to listen to God. And it's not that any of those things are wrong, of course, in themselves. You think of emotion. Uh, emotion is an important aspect of worship. You see this in uh, virtually every one of the psalms that speak about uh, joy, delight in God's word or sorrow uh, for sin. But it's very easy, and it's a temptation in every generation for God's people to go to the temple in the Old Testament or God's people to go to the church uh, in the New Testament to just to come here to show off how good, how religious, how committed, how moved, how emotional we are. And, and, and the, the temptation is that our public display no longer matches the truth of our private life. Solomon warns us, guard your steps. You are not as religious as you think you are. God is not as impressed with you as you think he is. God sees right through your display of piety to a heart that is in many ways still full of guile and deceit. Guard your steps. Better to listen, he says, than to come and offer the sacrifice of fools. And really what, what that form of worship amounts to in the end is idolatry and sin. So Solomon says, don't be the fool who doesn't even realize that what he's doing is wrong. It's sin, and he doesn't even know that he's sinning because he's so full of himself. Don't be the fool that thinks he's being religious, who thinks that God must be really impressed with him, but in fact is sinning against God because he's not worshiping God, he's worshiping himself. And that means it's idolatry. Now, one very easy way to, to measure this uh, is to ask the question, does my, uh, do, does my private devotion, my private study of God's word, my private prayer life, uh, and my private relationship with God match what I show in church? This is what the Lord Jesus warned the Pharisees about, right? Where uh, he says, if all you do is, is pray in public, uh, and you have these long, uh, visible public prayers, uh, but it doesn't match your private prayer life, then go home. Go to your bedroom, close the door, and pray there where God your Father will see in secret. He who knows your heart will see you, hear you, and answer you. Don't come to show off. So there it is. Solomon says, guard your steps when you come to the house of God. Come to listen rather than to speak, because believe it or not, you have a lot more to learn than to offer. Be humble. Come with the purpose to learn. Come trusting that God will teach you if you're willing to, to be humble and listen and learn. And this affects how we receive the preaching of the word of God as well. What is your demeanor as you listen to and receive the preaching of the word? What's your normal first response when you leave this place and get into your vehicle or into your home? Uh, is it to criticize? Is it to find fault? Is it, is it to complain about what you thought was, was missing that should have been there or what was excessive that, that shouldn't have been there? You know, one of the complaints that probably every minister has heard, particularly in our generation, is uh, our generation seems to, uh, to think that preaching needs to be relevant. And, and it, it's a bit of an ambiguous term. What does it mean to be, to be relevant? But it's, it's a complaint you hear, particularly in our generation. Preaching isn't, isn't relevant enough. Now, you have to ask, by what standard? Relevant to, to what? Uh, relevant to who? Uh, 
oftentimes what's, what's meant is really just, we just want more practical preaching. Tell us what to do. Tell us how to raise our kids or, uh, or, or to, to work on our marriages uh, or, or speak to the, the contemporary issues that, that mark our day. But the truth is the Word of God is always relevant. Uh, God does not speak in vain. The real question is, are our own hearts humble enough to listen and accept that what God speaks to us in His Word matters? Uh, the, the, the real critical question that should always be asked of the preaching is, is it faithful to the text? Is the preacher preaching the text or his own opinion? Now, yes, it must be applied to the lives of God's people, uh, but the lives of God's people should be conformed to the Word of God, not the other way around. The Word of God must not be conformed to the preferences, opinions, and desires of people. The, rele the, the, the relevance of God's Word is not always going to be immediately obvious to us. And sometimes the application of the sermon, just like the, the force of a text, is behold your God, behold his grace. And the, rele the, the relevance of that, uh, the, the practical outworking of that, will make itself clear uh, in your own life. The single greatest concern, then, of a preacher ought to be, is the message faithful to what the text is teaching us? It really shouldn't surprise us that God would have things to say to us, that we don't think we're all that relevant. We should expect that if God is wiser than we are. What we don't want to be is like the, uh, the teenager who's, who's listening to his parents as they're teaching him life lessons, and, uh, and he's wondering, why do, why do mom and dad blab on about all these things? It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, that, that's not how we want to receive the word of God. Um, really, much of the degradation of preaching in the last century here in North America uh, is a direct consequence of preachers bowing to the pressure to be culturally relevant uh, and practical instead of being committed to preaching the message of God's word. This is, in fact, enshrined even in the very way that we, uh, in, our, in our federation, the way that we examine our ministers at classes. If you ever go to a classes exam, it's a good experience to do if you have the opportunity and, and it's public when they're examining uh, students or candidates. Uh, the, the single greatest criterion in a sermon evaluation uh, and, and the single reason why candidates fail is that question, is that what the text was saying? If a preacher takes a text and goes somewhere with it that the text was not going, uh, then he ought to fail. Uh, the sermon might be true, it might be beautiful, it might be moving, uh, it might be full of wonderful applications, but if it's not preaching what the text says, then what we're doing is we're saying we will let our preferences about what matters or our opinions about what's important direct the preaching that comes from the pulpit rather than the Word of God. The message must be faithful to the text. The, preacher, uh, the preacher's calling is to make the voice of God heard. Now, I'm aware for my own part that I still fail in that uh, many times. It's a great temptation to take a text and use it as an opportunity uh, to talk about something that the text is not talking about. So as preachers, uh, preachers have to examine themselves more than anyone else in this matter. It's part of my sermon writing process uh, that, that I must first listen to the word of God, submit myself to the word of God. Repent of sin where the word is calling me to repent 
before I ever dare to bring a, pulp, uh, bring a sermon to, to a pulpit in, in the church. It's like the Apostle James says, let not many of you uh, become teachers, for those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Because you knew what the word said, and if you didn't do it, uh, then, then you have no excuse. But really, all of us have to examine ourselves in this matter. What is your basic disposition before the word of God? Is it to listen and to submit to the word, or is it to assume the role of speaker? You know, your kids will certainly know the answer to that. If the moment you get into the car, your Sunday routine is to begin tearing the sermon apart or, or criticizing uh, things that were said, in your opinion, that shouldn't have been said or, 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 or things that should have been said that, in your opinion, or things that should have been said, in your opinion, that weren't said, then something's wrong with your basic disposition in worship. The same is also true of our attitude in Bible study uh, or in our, in, our, in our group studies. Is our attitude one of whatever we find in this text, we need to make it relevant to me. It needs to be about me. Uh, if, it's, if it's only about God, uh, then, then it doesn't matter. Then there's something wrong with our approach to the word of God. Now, don't misunderstand the point. It is important to ask the question, now what does this mean for us? How do we live this out? Uh, but that question needs to be asked on the premise that we've first taken the time to understand what the word actually means and what it says about God. And if we insist too quickly, as we are very easily tempted to do, on extracting the material that we suppose is relevant and bypassing that which we deem to be irrelevant, we're going to end up missing out on the one thing we really need more than anything else, which is the voice of God speaking into our opinions, speaking into our world of confusion and distorted priorities and misguided opinions about what matters and what doesn't matter. We're going to miss the voice of God because we didn't listen, because we didn't think it mattered. So here's Solomon's very practical application. Come to listen. Come to listen. Come to hear God speak and ponder the message of God's word for yourself. And sometimes, uh, in accordance with uh, a Bible text, uh, sometimes in the sermon there's not going to be an explicit practical application. Sometimes it's simply, behold your God, behold his grace, and figure out what that means this week for you. If that's the case, that means this week it's your job to take the message into your own heart, uh, to pray it before God, and to figure out how to live accordingly in your own life. You've been given the Spirit, and you've been given the Spirit for a reason. Uh, you've been commanded to be constant in prayer for a reason. So if you're not sure uh, how a particular passage of God's Word is relevant or, or why it matters, take it to heart, bring it before God in prayer, and trust that God will show you why this matters for you. Again, it shouldn't surprise us that God would teach us things that we don't see why they matter. Uh, if God is truly God and not just a reflection of our own opinions and preferences, that's something that we should expect. And so if God wants to tell us uh, about 12, 12 bulls for a, for a burnt offering and, and 12 male goats for a sin offering, uh, maybe we should just listen and think about it. Store it up in our heart, and, and who knows whether in due time that will show us something from God's word that we will see why it matters at a later time. 
And really, our, our whole attitude uh, has to be that of the psalmist in, in Psalm 119, where he says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Without your word, I stumble about in darkness. My, I, I, I stumble over my own opinions and ideas. I need your word to see. Our whole dis- disposition needs to be one of, I can't see clearly on my own. I need God's help. Uh, and so I will listen when God speaks. And this is true of the, the message of the gospel as well. Uh, the message of the gospel is one that sinners would deem irrelevant. We didn't know that we stood under God's judgment. We didn't think that we deserved hell. We, if anything, uh, if we wanted God to speak, we would like God to fix the problems of our world. And what does God do? He sends his son to deal with the problem of sin which we didn't think was a problem, uh, so that he could reconcile us to himself, which we, didn't, we weren't really concerned about being reconciled to him. That's the message of the gospel, a message that is foolishness, as Paul says, to those who are perishing, but is salvation and life to those who are being saved. Now, a couple of uh, practical applications uh, that I hope you can see are coming from the text. Uh, first of all, concerning prayer. One of the ways in which fools love to make their voices heard is in prayer. Now, in our church, we don't, we don't take turns doing congregational prayer as some churches do, as uh, they also did in the synagogues. Uh, usually after the sermon, uh, a member of the congregation will be called upon uh, to pray. Uh, they do that in the Reformed churches in Brazil, so it's not completely foreign to us, but we don't do it here. Uh, but you can easily imagine how, if that was something we did, how, how quickly that would be accompanied by the temptation for the one who's praying, uh, if he is a foolish person, to take the opportunity to show off just how pious uh, or how insightful or how devoted or how authentic or how vulnerable or whatever else happens to be in vogue he is. We should take Solomon's words to heart here. God is in heaven You are on earth. Let your words be few. If you read the book of Proverbs, uh, you quickly discover this is one of the distinguishing marks of of the wise over against fools, is they generally refrain from speaking. Uh, Proverbs 10, verse 14, The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Uh, Proverbs 12, 23, A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Proverbs 17, 28, uh, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. See, fools love to make their voice heard. The wise would prefer to be quiet. It's as uh, uh, the saying goes, it is better to be silent and be thought a fool uh, than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Uh, The wise assume by default that they don't know everything there is to know, and so their desire is to learn. The fool, by contrast, assumes by default that he knows more and understands more than everyone else, and so his default impulse is to speak. He's always the first one to speak, the last one to understand. Well, Solomon says, don't be that fool, particularly before God. God's in heaven and you are on earth. In other words, God understands things you don't. God sees things from a perspective that you don't see. Therefore, let your words be few. That's not to say long prayers are bad in and of themselves. There's a place for spending longer time in prayer, particularly in our private devotions. 
We're called to be devoted to prayer. You see this in the life of the Lord Jesus, how he would spend hours sometimes alone in prayer. Uh, So in your private prayers, feel free to pray for as long as you would like. There's something rich and beneficial in, in spending long amounts of time in prayer. But be careful uh, that your prayer does not become, if it's in public, does not become an opportunity to show off. Instead, pray as one praying to his Father in heaven. And your Father in heaven who knows your heart, including the follies of your heart, will hear you and reward you. You notice in Matthew 6, right after the Lord Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their their long and wordy prayers, and then he rebukes the Gentiles too for their thinking that they'll be heard for their many words, he then turns to his disciples and he says, instead pray like this, and he teaches them the Lord's Prayer for a grand total of four sentences, but four substantial and meaningful uh, short sentences. God is in heaven, you are on earth, Let your words be few. If you're called upon to pray in public or to pray at Bible study, to pray in a group, let your prayers be short, humble reflections of a much more substantial and meaningful private prayer life in which there you've learned to pour out your heart before God and spend meaningful time before the throne of his grace. There's a second practical application as well that Solomon uh, speaks of uh, concerning vows. Uh, This is what Solomon calls the sacrifice of fools uh, in the taking of vows that fools don't intend to keep. Now, this this might require just a brief explanation because we don't make vows, I think, as commonly in our day as the people of Israel did uh, then. Uh, The practice of making sacred vows was, was a common feature of worship in the Old Testament. You think of Deuteronomy uh, 12, verse 6, where Moses is speaking about uh, the eventual building of the temple. Uh, and he says, There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. Uh, these are the vows that people would make before God. Uh, and you hear this again and again in, in the Psalm. Psalm 22, verse uh, 25 From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Or we sang earlier, Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Psalm 56, 12. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render my thank offerings before you. And uh, the examples could go on and on. Uh, So it was clearly a common feature of Old Testament worship uh, to, to make vows to God. You might think of Hannah, the, the mother of Samuel, uh, where, where she came uh, praying for a child uh, and made a vow to God that if God would give her a child, she would devote him to, to temple service. Uh, and there is something to be said for the making of, of vows. Uh, you do see a few instances in the New Testament as well. It is good to make thoughtful, wise vows before the Lord. Now, those of you who, for example, may be struggling with your, your regular voluntary contributions uh, to the church, you might be helped by spending some time in prayer about this together with your spouse and then making a vow to the Lord, saying this is what we want to give to the Lord. Now, there can be great benefit to that in binding ourselves uh, to greater commitment and devotion to God, uh, or, or also in the fight against sin, to, to be making vows before God in the fight against sin. So there, there is value to that. But having said that, if you do make a vow before God, keep your vow. 
That's verses 4 to 7. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and then not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, uh, this is the priest who would hear your vow and then come uh, a year later when you come to the temple again, would come and say, okay, did you keep your vow? Uh, do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. And it's easy enough in, in a flight of fancy uh, or in a surge of emotion to make some sort of grandiose vow before God, uh, as particularly if it's in a public setting as it was in, in the temple. In the temple, it was, it was an expectation that the one who comes to worship would also be making vows uh, before God that, that would be heard by the priest and perhaps by other worshipers. Uh, and there was sometimes even a certain cultural pressure on the worshiper uh, to make some sort of grandiose vow, to do at least as good or better than, than his neighbor. Uh, and as a result, many people ended up making uh, big vows, but rash vows that they had no intention of actually keeping or where they hadn't first counted the cost of what it would be like to pay that vow. And so Solomon says, God has no pleasure in fools. If you make a vow, keep your vow. If you don't intend to keep it, then don't make it. The same should be said, of course, for marriage vows, uh, though that is a, a different sermon. Uh, in the temple, then, uh, one of the functions of the priest was, was to hear those vows and then to go check on, uh, on the person a year later as a means of accountability. Solomon says, don't put yourself in a position of having to admit to the priest that you shouldn't have made the vow, that it was a mistake. Uh, it, it's better than to just not vow at all. See an example of this in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The, the people of God were, were vowing. They were, they were giving their property uh, to the church, selling their, 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 their property and giving the proceeds, laying it before the feet of, of the apostles. Uh, and you can just imagine how, how quickly the cultural pressure within the church uh, is on each of the believers to, uh, you know, if your neighbor sold their house and their property and gave it to the church, you feel the pressure that, well, maybe we should do the same. Uh, and so Ananias and Sapphira saw this, and who knows, right? Maybe they just wanted their, their share of the attention and recognition that others were, were getting. But for whatever reason, they do the same. They, they pledged their property to God uh, and then sold it. But then when they laid the money at the feet of the apostles, they kept back part of the proceeds. It speaks a lot about their, their motives, right, in, in having made the vow in the first place. And Peter's rebuke to them is right on point. He says... While it was unsold, it was your property. You could do with it what you wanted. You didn't have to vow it to God. And after it was sold too, the money was still at your disposal. So why have you contri contrived this deed in your heart? When you vow like this, you vow, you lie, not to man, but to God. And so they were ultimately struck down and killed for having made that vow. And the text says the fear of God came on that whole community. It says the fear, the fear of God. And that's really what this whole text is about. Uh, come cautiously, come humbly before God with the fear of God on your heart. What all of this really comes down to, if we've taken these lessons to heart so far, if we've seen how small and fleeting we are, how, how transient uh, the things that we chase after are, then when we come to worship, our whole disposition should be one of uh, readiness to receive from God, uh, not to show off 
to God, ready to receive God's grace rather than to offer up ourselves as something better. Uh, we want to come, naturally, we want to come to celebrate ourselves. Isn't it the grace of God that God calls us instead to celebrate him, that he gives us more than ourselves? Because if all we had was ourselves, all we would be is lost in darkness. Come then to fear God and listen and learn from him. Amen.